Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Critical illness is frequently associated with neurological abnormalities. Acute metabolic encephalopathy is a commonly utilized diagnostic term in the ICU. What does it mean? How should we manage it? In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss acute metabolic encephalopathies. Our guest is Dr. Elko Widix, professor of neurology at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. He is also an attending neurointensivist in the Neurosciences Intensive Care Unit at the St. Mary's Hospital Campus in Rochester, Minnesota and serves as the chair in the Critical Care and Hospital Neurology Division in the Department of Neurology. Dr. Widjiks is also the founding editor in the journal Neurocritical Care, the official journal of the Neurocritical Care Society, of which he's an honorary member. He's a recognized clinician, educator, and investigator with special interest in neurocritical care, emergency neurology, and neurological complications of critical illness. He has published extensively over 15 books, single-authored and multiple collaborations with over 750 um, peer-reviewed articles and is about to relaunch a new edition of a book entitled Neurological Complications of Critical Illness, links of all of which will be in the show notes. It's a true honor to have him today to discuss this important topic. Elko, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for asking. It's an interesting topic. Not easy, though. For sure. And I think that uh, we, we might want to start just in terms of uh, we were we were discussing before we started recording how metabolic encephalopathy is a very commonly diagnostic code used for billing and, and documenting purposes in the ICU, yet really means very different things for patient, for different patients, but also for different clinicians. And it's almost like a wastebasket term in, in, in some respects. And I wanted to know if you could just give us a little bit more your thoughts around the term and how we should be thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, uh, the problem is that, um, um, as we all know, if, if you would ask a neurologist to come into your intensive care unit to see a patient that you think is not uh, recovering well after surgery or is... Uh, um, is not as bright and crisp after a sepsis has been treated. Um, you ask them, uh, ask neurologists to see the patient with the uh, often um, with the, the title of the consult is usually please uh, evaluate this patient uh, for altered mental status. And um, uh, for us, um, I think those are probably a very common consults as a sort of a uh, backdrop, we uh, at Mayo, and when I started Mayo, um, we we see all the neurointensivists see all the consults in all the ICUs, all the medical and surgical and transplant units. Um, and we've been doing this for um, as long as been there for over 30 years. Um, and so we see not only our own patients in our neurointensive care unit, but also do consults in um, in other intensive care units. There, there's a number of reasons why we did that. I think it is important uh, for neurologists when they uh, come in is that they have a good grasp of uh, what these patients are and 
what kind of surgeries they had, what, uh, what kind of um, concerns the intensivists had in treating these patients, what kind of medication they're using, how their half-lives and uh, how these, uh, of these drugs, of the drugs are that they are administered. So we've been, always been looking at those patients, always doing done those consults. And again, uh, altered mental status is the most, one of the most common reasons to see a patient. Now, over many years, um, if the CT scan is normal and there's no uh, really uh, clear focal findings, um, neurologists have the tendency to call it metabolic encephalopathy or even, or call it uh, toxic metabolic encephalopathy and then uh, go away and, um, and, and leave it at that. Um, I felt that that's not the right way to do it. Um, there may not be a good alternative to this term, and I'm not going to talk, talk uh, too much about semiology, but just to, um, to explain that toxic metabolic encephalopathy is obviously not a, a, a diagnosis. Um, we, um, uh, if you, if you, you have to go back to where this term came from, and metabolic encephalopathy came uh, truly out of um, um, a classic book on coma by Fred Plum and uh, Jerry Posner, where they try to um, categorize a patient who had an abnormal level of consciousness or comatose into structural lesions and non-structural lesions and decided that if it's non-structural, it has to be metabolic. And in that category, there are a large group of patients uh, that you and I would not necessarily think is metabolic, including subregular hemorrhage, including seizures, including um, uh, any any toxication, intoxication that would uh, be listed on the metabolic uh, encephalopathy or metabolic cause of coma. And that's why I think the, and the idea was that, you know, there's something wrong <clears throat> with the metabolism of the brain and brain function. And therefore, um, uh, we call it, um, we call it metabolic encephalopathy. So, um, Toxic meta the, the the risk that you take is if you call it toxic metabolic encephalopathy that you uh, deny yourself looking into what it really means. What is toxic here, and what is metabolic, and that you are not going to go through every step of the way trying to figure out um, uh, what is what has really happened to the patient and why the patient is in the state that the patient is in. Again, with a normal CAT scan, uh, obviously, or an even better, a normal MRI scan. Um, so those are challenges for all of us, and always has been. Um, I always tell my residents, if you go into a, an intensive care unit, uh, the three most common causes of uh, failure to awaken or uh, not being uh, alert is uh, drugs, drugs, and drugs. Um, We've, uh, over the years and over many years, have been uh, trying to uh, cope with uh, the, the number of drugs that were given to the patient, combinations of drugs that were given to the patient. Uh, that uh, makes it almost impossible to have a reliable, unconfounded neurological examination. We know that, and we try to um, work our ways through it, but in many situations where um, we can be fooled, we think the patient is much worse, and then uh, everything clears out of the system and the patient is much better. Can be easily fooled by um, 
the medication that has been given to the patient. So um, the point here is that if you use the term metabolic encephalopathy, uh, it's fine to use it, but it can only be used if you've looked carefully what you truly mean by that and what have you looked into to say that this is metabolic. It's probably better to say um, acute metabolic derangements, that there has been acute metabolic derangement in the patients that way, rather than just say, I don't know what it is. Uh, it has to be metabolic because I can't find a structural lesion as far as I've uh, been looking. Um, and uh, so it has to be metabolic. Obviously, and we can talk about that, obviously you will miss a lot of disorders uh, by just saying that. So there is a major concern uh, using the term toxic metabolic. Um, uh, we know where it comes from. Uh, it's, uh, it's a um, trying to uh, put a lot of diagnoses into a categorization of abnormal consciousness. And it is um, um, uh, not right to do it that way, but there's not a good alternative term at the moment. And, and I think two things that, that come immediately to mind, um, Elko, is one is that the absence of a, a structural abnormality, that, w that the absence of identifying a structural abnormality just doesn't mean that it's not there. It might be that whatever we use is not sensitive enough, right? Because... Uh, a lot of times, yeah, and I, I think that's right. So, so the cats. So first, I think, um, and these are these these uh, recommendations are quite obvious. But um, if I see a patient, uh, it is not. It often is in a situation that I think um, needs to be remedied. Is that a cat scan might be a week old? Uh, an MRI scan has not been done. Um, uh, and um, patients, some patients need a CT and CTA. Um, uh, to give an example, there are patients who uh, have, a, a, when a patient has an acute embolus to the bowel of the artery, the CT, the CT scan is normal, um, but your neurologic examination points towards an embolus to the bowel of the artery, and you need a CTA to figure out what is happening to the patient. So, um, it depends on how, how deep you look. I think MRI scans, uh, although in the past it was more difficult to do and it continues to be difficult to do in critically ill patients to move them out of the intensive care, and not so much because the movement is, is possible or not so much because the patient is intubated and you need an additional anesthesiologist in the neuroimaging suite. But it is more that um, uh, these patients are outside your ICU uh, and uh, you don't want them to code in an, uh, in an MRI scanner. Uh, you want to be absolutely certain that the patient can undergo that one hour, sometimes two hour study, uh, which will give you a significant amount of, a potential significant amount of information. I mean, um, we've known that um, patients who um, have on the ongoing MRI scan, uh, we find more abnormalities, uh, and these abnormalities are obviously depending on what the underlying illness of the patient is, but you can find multiple infarcts, you can find it certainly in a patient who has been resuscitated with a normal CT scan, you will find an ischemic injury that can be uh, profound, that is, that is mostly missed on a, on a regular CAT, CAT scan. Um, and um, what is, uh, rapidly increasing uh, and uh, what are rapidly more recognized is that many patients have press 
posterior reversal encephalopathy syndrome, another term that we can talk about how, where that is coming from and how, uh, how um, deceptive that term is. But what I'm talking about is uh, edema in the occipital parietal lobes, uh, often also in the thalamus and other areas where that uh, reduces your level of consciousness and can be seen in sepsis and in patients who are admitted with a hypertensive emergency or uh, are hypertensive as a result of a certain drug that has been administered. And um, uh, one of the other um, major uh, causes of press is obviously um, the immunosuppressive agents that are used in transplant patients. But besides that, the point to make here is that when you get a CAT scan, uh, the CAT scan may be old and may have changed the moment you see the patient. Um, uh, and MRI scans are more utilized now. And that probably will narrow down the group of patients that uh, we, we, we now would uh, classify uh, as uh, metabolic encephalopathy or toxic metabolic encephalopathies. And it's um, not uncommon that we find on MRI scan abnormalities that um, uh, that even uh, have EEGs that would suggest that this is a metabolic derangement, that, have, that there are abnormalities on the MRI scan. So um, if, you don't under, if you don't understand or have a good grasp of what is happening to the patient, an MRI scan remains um, uh, the go-to uh, diagnostic test. Now, what we don't yet have discussed, and probably the most important part of, of everything else is that what does your neurologic examination show? And uh, a detailed neurologic examination uh, will drive your your test um, uh, that you would order, um, obviously. Um, so, and there are subtleties in your neurologic examination that would point you to a certain direction. So you always start with the neurologic examination, then you go from there. Uh, but uh, again, um, when we say there is no structural injury, uh, we may not um, uh, necessarily know that all that well because our studies are not uh, detailed enough. And and the other aspect of uh, that that I was thinking of as you were explaining this is that we also often will see that the derangement that we are um, blaming as the cause of the encephalopathy sometimes are corrected, yet the patient doesn't improve, which also makes you wonder what else is going on, right? Yeah, so that's another um, uh, another important uh, thing to realize. If you so, let's say you you examine a patient and there's nothing really that uh, strikes you, and that's I think ninety percent of the patient uh, where your examination um, reveals that the patient um, uh, one opens his eyes to uh, to a pain stimulus and uh, and there is a bit of a uh, withdrawal response in both extremities and the eye movements uh, do not show any. Abnormal pathological abnormalities and um, brainstem reflexes are intact. The patient has been in that state for a while and has had um, no, um, you know, for a week, no, uh, no CNF, CNS depressant drugs. That those patients, um, you'll uh, you're you're faced with a non-focal and non-localizing neurologic examination. And then you have to um, uh, decide, well, uh, what is causing it. Now, we often run into an argument. An argument may be a big word, but at least um, uh, disagreement, I would say, um, that 
a patient who has been uremic and is not uremic is not exactly the patient who was the patient before the patient became uremic. In other words, the moment that someone is uremic, um, it may take several days, uh, even a week, for, before the patient starts improving. It's not that you can just dialyze the patient and the patient will be uh, much better the next day. It will take a long time. The same applies to patients who have had hyperaminemia in the setting of, um, uh, of liver disease. But once you correct a hyperaminemia, um, after giving lactulose and rifaximin, for example, um, you will um, have to wait for many, many days for the patient to uh, to improve. And that, I don't know, we, I think we do understand why there is such a delay, but the delay is often not appreciated. In our, and, and we get into a discussion, well, um, this patient has all non-normal values, but so it cannot be the, uh, the case and we need to look for something else. I think that's... Uh, not always the case. Uh, I think uh, once these abnormalities have occurred, the brain is not able to uh, correct its to, to correct its function so quickly as we hope it would be. And it and in critical care, we have learned to think of organ failure in terms of syndromes. And uh, I know that some people um, propose the term acute brain failure when we really don't know the cause. Any thoughts on that? Well, there is. There is brain failure, and um, uh, you can call it acute brain failure, but that's just another term. You can all, I mean, a lot of patients have now been, uh, are now, un unfortunately, in my opinion, are labeled to hypoactive delirium. And then you get into a whole discussion, um, well, is hyper hypoactive delirium different than encephalopathy? Um, and uh, I've seen patients diagnosed with hyperactive delirium and um, and come in there and they're they're seizing and um, or they have a marked um, abnormality, a new metabolic derangement, or um, uh, they've been given medication that is still in their system um, that makes them hyperactive. Uh, of course, it it does. So the terminology of that is. It, it, Terminology is difficult and complicated, um, and there's no, I, I don't have a solution to to it. Uh, I don't. I, there's not a, a magic term that would uh, would solve all those problems. Uh, but you got to be careful by uh, uh, labeling someone delirious uh, and then hyperactive delirium. Well. Um, uh, you then stop looking for uh, for alternative explanations, um, and that is, I think, what, what, what is by being my experience and also experience of my colleagues is that it's too easy to say, well, it's delirium or it's hyperactive delirium or it's an encephalopathy, and um, uh, and that's what it must be. Now. There are conditions in which we don't know uh, that there, uh, what the cause of brain failure is. That absolutely known that patients who have been septic, um, uh, I tend uh, the, the best way to say it's septic encephalopathy or encephalopathy of multi-organ failure. That that leads to um, uh, a, a marked brain dysfunction, and we don't know what it is. It's the, uh, it's, it's the inflammatory markers, or if there is there a reduced cerebral. Um, a perfusion, or is the brain uh, just part of a um, an innocent, not, not so innocent, but a bystander of 
of all the organ function and it was and it's part of the organs that is hit by the, the primary process oh. uh, we don't know what it is um, if you do MRI scans you uh, you rarely find an ischemic injury you may find uh, infarcts here and there you never find micro abscesses in the setting of, a, of an infection uh, so there is a dysfunction uh, that of which the patient can recover um, uh, over time um, so yeah, we can call it all acute brain failure, but that's again, you get you you'll get back to your terminology that is insufficient and it's not going not be terribly helpful if you want to look for the causes of it. Yeah, and and it seemed Elko that at the end of the, the day, obviously we recognize that ter- the the terms sometimes are overlapping; they're not uh, perfect and discriminating. But it's important to have this discussion because ultimately, what we don't want is for labeling patients and then maybe not pursuing a, a more thorough diagnostic approach or asking more questions of what else could it be, which might leave things that have very treatable interventions uh, un- undiscovered. That's absolutely true. So um, um, if I see a patient, and let's assume the patient, you, you don't, I mean, Many critical illness, uh, many critical, many, many intensivists hope that there's a neurologist comes in and says, "Oh, we have you thought about this?" and th- and then does a test, and it's completely different or a surprise to everyone. Well, that doesn't happen that often. In fact, it's rare that, that such a thing happens. We are, um, we're not magical. We can, uh, we can we often see the similar thing, but we we can point out that uh, that in some patients you would need uh, a new basic metabolic panel it's good to get a new blood gas and to it's good to get a new serum uh, ammonia and lactate um, it's good at times to do a 24-hour EEG monitoring uh, do CSF if necessary um, and obtain an MRI scan um, uh, and so and then also look uh, in certain situations if there is a toxic drug and We've also come to uh, come to appreciate over time that there are several uh, antimicrobials, including cefepime, that uh, have a, 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 neuro, a neurologic um, um, syndrome uh, with myoclonus and rigidity that um, that can be recognized um, uh, as such, and, and and many of those patients have have developed new uh, renal failure while the dose is, uh, has remained the same. Yeah. Or were just simply overdosed. Um, so there's an, an, um, an, an, a good initial approach to go stepwise through examination, trying to find if there's a localizing finding, then go um, and then um, do an extensive new metabolic panel and look and see if there are trends in certain directions. And, and ask for more laboratory work uh, and more recent laboratory work to uh, assure that uh, that, there, that nothing has changed. I mean, I've seen uh, patients who, uh, in which we asked uh, for serum ammonia that there was a surprise of a hyperammonemia that nobody really understood why, why that would happen. For example, the, the best example are the patient with lung transplantation in which hyperammonemia is detected and nobody thought about it. So that was the case. So. Um, um, new metabolic um, um, laboratory tests are necessary to uh, to attribute uh, to potentially attribute it to the the way the patient looks. 
it's also important to know, you know, if the, if the liver has changed in its function, if the kidney has changed in its function, that all the drugs you're giving to the patient are all um, uh, changing in their clearance. And that um, um, has a major impact on how you examine and the patient and how confounded the patient can be. And, and you mentioned cefepine, and you also mentioned drugs, drugs, and drugs as causes of altered mental status. Can we explore a little bit more on the confounding factors, which obviously is an important aspect of making sure that um, we eliminate them before we, 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 we try to get to a diagnosis? One of the drugs that I wanted you to comment on from your perspective as a neurointensivist and neurologist is fentanyl, very commonly utilized in, in general ICUs. I would subject that almost in every ICU there's fentanyl drips infusing, yet I don't think that a lot of clinicians appreciate the impact it can have on the brain. No, uh, I think that's very poorly appreciated. Um, um, and everyone who has had fentanyl for a procedure knows uh, knows how, uh, how down and out you can be um, afterwards. And it, it takes a little while for that to clear. And the half-life of these drugs are... Um, are um, very much dependent how long the infusion has been given to the patient. Um, if you give if you give fentanyl 100 mics um, daily for for a week, don't expect uh, that after 48 hours the fentanyl is out of uh, your uh, your patient's system. That's not the case. So we we tend to underestimate that. I've uh, I've seen uh, and I've probably been uh, guilty of myself too is that um, we thought that we think the patient is much worse um, and then clears after uh, all the drugs have been discontinued or we just gave the patient a little bit more time. Um, a, a typical example uh, that I've seen where, where most mistakes are made are patients after cardiopulmonary resuscitation who have an ischemic injury. And they're comatose, and they're comatose for a reason. And if you are comatose following cardiopulmonary resuscitation, um, and you stay comatose, uh, then you can. Uh, it's unmistakably so that all the other organs are also damaged. So your kidney has been has had a big hit. Your liver has had a big hit, and your initial studies look normal. But if you don't repeat them, you'll find that there's there's a uh, a significant injury to the liver and kidney that immediately makes it very difficult to clear uh, the drugs that have you been giving to the patient, whether you wanted to sedate the patient or whether the patient is in a um, targeted temperature management, uh, makes it very difficult to get an unconfounded neurological examination. So it's not only the drug or the, the time of administration of the drug that, uh, that changes your half-life, uh, which is so well known with midazolam and so well known with, uh, with fentanyl, but it's also that there has been acute change in liver or in liver or kidney function, and also the combination that uh, makes it very difficult to clear clear a drug. Um, and then you're talking about elderly patients in which the clearance is not um, um, uh, according to the uh, the half life that has been listed. That's also changed. Um, age does just simply does that. So an elderly patient who has been resuscitated and been giving um, several days of fentanyl, your neurological examination is extraordinarily confounded. Uh, and you've got to be very careful in determining 
um, uh, whether the, what you see is what uh, what is truly the patient's uh, functioning, and that's uh, I can I can um, really attest to that. That that's a uh, an important confounder. We often make a mistake by uh, by not ex- accepting that and and looking into it. Absolutely. What about? Uh, I wonder if you could comment. Um, Elko, on electrolyte abnormalities have confounding factors, uh, specifically glucose, sodium, and calcium? Yeah, so many of them are not confounders. Um, I think the only confounder is, I think the, the biggest confounder, of course, glucose is, but, um, and of course, if a hypoglycemic patient is, um, or a patient who has been hypoglycemic patient, uh, as a hypoglycemic injury, uh, will... Um, will remain comatose uh, with an MRI scan that can be completely normal or be, or later become abnormal. Um, uh, a patient who has had um, significant changes in sodium, uh, in sodium, either a significant hyponatremia or I think more, far more common uh, impact on your level of consciousness is significant hypernatremia um, are, um, uh, are major... Um, and founders, um, and there is not an absolute uh, cutoff value, but any any patient who drops the sodium less than 125, or any patient who has the sodium more than 160, that will impact on their responsiveness, um, and will have to uh, have to be corrected before you are, uh, can safely say that that's that that what you see on examination is what uh, what it truly is. So. Um, but calcium and magnesium, um, uh, these electrolytes in general do not impact on the brain. It may impact on uh, on, on your respiration um, and your um, uh, your peripheral nervous system, but not so much on the brain. Um, um, your, your your major components, really, your major um, uh, drugs or tests to do is a blood gas um, and your serum ammonia. Uh, and then uh, look at um, um, your BUN and creatinine and liver function tests and see if they haven't changed. Those are the tests that I think uh, continue to be obligatory uh, when you evaluate the patient. Now, vitamin deficiencies are often mentioned. Um, I'm always continue to be struck why we don't see Wernicke encephalopathy that often patients who have been critically ill are rapidly getting into a thiamine deficiency, but I think we, we administer them uh, thiamine very rapidly. In many patients, it's just almost an automatic thing to do uh, in a patient who has had, who's malnourished or has an alcohol use disorder, is that we um, load them with uh, thiamine very rapidly, and that might be the reason why we don't see that uh, that often. Uh, in a in a situation in which the thiamine stores are rapidly depleted as a result of their critical illness, and so we rarely see Wernicke encephalopathy. We rarely see Wernicke uh, um, uh, Korsakoff uh, or any any eye movement abnormalities in patients who are critically ill. And those are the ones to to look at. Some vitamin deficiencies can can be seen. And the best, uh, the the most important would be would be the B1 deficiency. Um, another, I think another um, um, interesting um, issue is uh, what to do with EEG. How, how valuable is an EEG? 
And I can tell you from my own experience, we've done so many EEGs that are normal in a critical illness, in a critical care unit, that we often wonder why are we even doing it and why are we even monitoring for 24 hours in those patients. And I can tell you from my own experience, the moment I think it's non-convulsive status, it, the EEG is normal. The moment I don't think of it, the EEG shows non-convulsive status. Uh, it is um, hard to see, and, and, uh, and many patients who have had seizures will see it. And when patients who have focal seizures or are in non-convulsive status, and it's obvious, um, you'll see it, and you don't need your EEG to tell you that the patient is seizing. Um, so your EEG, the value of your EEG in a, uh, in a medical intensive care unit is, isn't all that great as we think it is. And, um, and there's often also a lot of misinterpretation uh, that rhythmic uh, triphasic waves that we've typically been uh, associated with um, acute metabolic derangements uh, should not be interpreted as non-convulsive status epilepticus. Um, and these are often misinterpreted uh, as non-convulsive status epilepticus. And then patient is over-treated uh, and the patient does not improve. Um, so um, EEG monitoring is, um, I'm not arguing against it in certain uh, uh, patients and certain selected uh, uh, patients, uh, but it's, there's definitely, um, we're doing a lot of EEGs and a lot of EEGs return as um, as uh, non-contributory and non-diagnostic. And, and obviously, um, the EEG is not a one-time like blood draw. It, it entails um, time and effort, and like you said, also subject to, to misinterpretation and uh, yeah. important for us to, to think about what we're ordering and how it can help us. What, one of the things I, I wanted to, to ask you very quickly, Elko, before we move on to the next topic is relating glucose. Now, you obviously talked about the importance of the of the physical examination, but of, of some of these confounding factors, and especially of the metabolic abnormalities, um, glucose is the one that can give you focal findings when it's very high. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so I don't know what it is, but it's about um, um, marked um, non-osmotic hyperglycemia is able to give focal findings. Uh, Hypoglycemia can also give focal findings. And what do we mean by focal findings? It can be hemiparesis, it can be aphasia, um, uh, but never uh, specific uh, abnormalities that pertain to abnormalities in the brainstem um, or um, loss of brainstem um, uh, reflexes uh, in those situations, except when it is extreme. But patients who have um, glucose in the, in the um, uh, 5 to 700 range uh, can definitely have focal findings. And in some of those patients, and perhaps um, uh, the majority of the patients, there have been a prior stroke uh, or an MRI abnormality that um, could indicate that, uh, that some of the milder um, abnormalities the patient might have are now exacerbated by significant hyperglycemia. In some of those situations, we, and we, in some situations, we thought that that would have been a mechanism, but it's not entirely clear why um, significant hyperglycemia or non-catonic hyperglycemia uh, can cause these, uh, uh, these focal findings. Um, but it does, and, uh, and, um, and, it disappears when you correct it. Uh, so that's an, uh, a known observation. 
Perfect. So we talked about um, organ failure being a common finding in, in the ICU and how different organ failures can impact the brain. I would like to just uh, maybe review a little bit further on different organ failures and uh, some characteristics or some important aspects that you consider for our clinicians to, 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 to have in mind. Um, and maybe we can start with acute respiratory failure. Yeah, so um, of acute respiratory failure, the question is what um, impacts on the brain? And I think um, one lesson to learn is that hypoxemia in general uh, has to be extraordinarily profound to uh, to impact uh, on uh, on the brain. And we, we actually um, um, have come to learn that most recently in uh, during the COVID pandemic in which patients were markedly hypoxemic, uh, and still were alert. Um, we all we all we, we call them um, the happy hypoxemics, but um, uh, the basic physiology has always been that you b- need to be extraordinary hypoxemic uh, uh, before um, uh, the brain uh, uh, loses its function. It's but what happens is that it's often and that's why we call it an ischemic injury is that the blood pressure may drop and then uh, becomes a different issue so hypoxemic hypotensive patient is a different situation than purely hypoxemia what changes the, um, uh, your responsiveness is hypercarbia uh, and that is um, um, definitely uh, impacting on your uh, level of consciousness of course the more extreme uh, we uh, we've known them as CO2 um, uh, narcosis, but patients who uh, uh, have an uh, a rise and sometimes not recognized rise, and that's one of the reasons why you need to do arterial blood gases, uh, which there's not hypoxemia, but um, there is a rise in uh, in CO2, that that uh, can definitely impact on the, on the responsiveness of the patient, and the patient will improve if that's corrected. You, you did mention, Elko, a little bit about um, acute, renal, acute renal failure when we're talking about uremia. Um, any other comments regarding acute renal failure and acute encephalopathy? No, I think um, acute renal failure, I think, is, I think urea, uh, urea or BUN remains in the best uh, guide. Um, I don't know how high it has to be. It's more trend. Um, we have, um, I've, I've convinced nephrologists to dialyze a patient who was, wasn't convinced that that would make a difference and the patients uh, improved. Not all the time, uh, but, uh, but there was a, a patient in which there's a significant trend upwards and it starts to cross the 100 number. Um, uh, I think in a trial of, um, uh, of dialysis uh, did make a difference in, uh, in a considerable number of patients. So we try to um try to, to to do that and 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 take the trend into account or someone who is suddenly uh, got much worse uh, is to is uh, considering that as, uh, as a possibility if you would say well this patient had a high high urea three months ago and why do you think it is abnormal now um that is uh, not always it can always not always can be said it's uh, it's more why this, this, did this patient suddenly had an extreme uh, uh, increase in urea? Uh, and could that impact on uh, what you see? And some of these patients have clinical findings. I mean, they have asterixes that aren't as new, um, and uh, or a multifocal myoclonus that is new, 
And if you find those abnormalities, uh, it definitely would make it would make it uh, sense to dialyze the patient and see if you could uh, reduce that number. And, and I think, as you mentioned earlier, it, it might take a, a little bit of time for for the symptoms to totally resolve, and the number itself might be different from patient to patient, right? Right. Excellent. Hey, can yeah. We- can we- uh, the, 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 yeah, what I said, there is no magic cutoff. Absolutely. Could you comment, Elko, on acute liver failure? And here it seems that, or, or liver failure, let's not call it acute, let's just say liver failure and cephalopathy because there is quite a distinction in terms of what you need to do once you develop encephalopathy in the acute liver setting versus more chronic, on acute on chronic liver setting. Yeah, it's a, that's, I mean, that's a, um, a, a topic that um, we would think we would know everything about, uh, but we don't. Um, um, I think where we have the best, best understanding is acute fulminant or fulminant hepatic failure in which the patient um, rapidly developed hepatic encephalopathy. And in that situation, um, we've now come to understand that there is, at some point, uh, a transition from hepatic encephalopathy, which is basically uh, a dysfunctional brain uh, or brain failure as a result of hyperaminemia, that then becomes uh, structural as a result of edema. And we think it's um, uh, that the hyperaminemia uh, results in um, an increase in glutamine, which is in and osmolite in causing uh, brain edema. I think we, that's, we still think that that's the main mechanism. Uh, and that, that these patients' CT scans start to change. Now, interestingly, over time, um, uh, transplant surgeons um, had to convince neurologists that that was the case. Uh, um, they always felt that, no, this is severe hepatic encephalopathy and nothing else. but uh, repeated CTs can have shown that these patients can develop a brain edema, and then with that brain edema, their inter, uh, intracranial pressure goes up, and the only way to treat that is liver transplantation. Um, uh, treatment of um, increased intracranial pressure is difficult in those patients. Uh, there's, a, I mean, you can you can definitely not use barbiturates uh, in a patient who has no liver. Um, it, the treatment is difficult. Um, uh, to do, and uh, liver transplantation is the only way to uh, to salvage the patient. So there is a transition from uh, severe hepatic encephalopathy, which ha- may have um, very significant neurologic findings of, of increased rigidity and um, marked increase in your oxalocephalic responses and even loss of brainstem reflexes that can be all attributed to severe hyperaminemia. We're talking here uh, very high ammonias uh, that are seen in patients who have uh, an acute um, liver failure, that that eventually lead to edema, and the edema needs to be treated aggressively, uh, and the best way to treat it aggressively is uh, a liver transplantation. doesn't matter what the cause of uh, vomit hepatic failure is. Um, has no um, no impact on it. Now, on the other hand, is it different in patients who have uh, chronic liver failure and have acute hyperaminemia as a, uh, acute on chronic. And that is an area that I think we start to recognize that it might be closer to the patient with vomit hepatic failure. And you've now have um, 
data and also we've seen that and actually actually i've seen uh several cases uh, recently um in which um mris can show it's, uh, how toxic ammonia can be in a patient who has a chronic liver failure um uh, you see cortical injury uh, you see injury that is uh, profound in the cortex often the insular cortex is involved and patients uh, um may not necessarily improve uh, but after you've corrected the ammonia for the simple reason that the, the ammonia has been uh, significantly toxic in those patients. And that's a new, relatively new finding because um, in general, uh, hepatologists uh, would not do MRIs in scans in those patients when they have um, acute or chronic re uh, renal failure. They try to, uh, or, or hepatic failure, they, would, they try to uh, lower down the ammonia as best as they could, or find shunts that can be repaired, um, and um, but not uh, would not do MRI scans. And we've now been able to to see um, not so much in a systemic way, and there's literature on the topic that MRI scans can be abnormal and can show the the, the significant toxic effect of ammonia. We had patients who were had a marked decline in their level of consciousness and stayed comatose and at progressive changes in their uh, on their MRI scan, and even uh, progressive changes on their CT scan, of which we were not so sure if those patients will get better over time, uh, despite their correction of ammonia. Uh, so um, there is sort of a transition between something that is getting better if your ammonia is getting better, to um, no, nothing will get better because the patient has had a toxic injury. Um, or has had brain edema as a result of uh, hyperammonemia or prolonged hyperammonemia. Um, and I don't know how, how long and pronounced and uh, prolonged and how high it can be, but every uh, hepatologist knows that some patients, it might be very difficult to bring uh, the ammonia down. And, um, and sometimes um, uh, MARS or even uh, dialysis uh, might be necessary in those patients or aggressive search for a shunt might be necessary to reduce the ammonia uh, that uh, that eventually uh, could help the patient. So I think it's, an under, under, it's underestimated. And then one of those, again, another example of something that we always felt was acute metabolic or metabolic encephalopathy turns out to be a structural abnormality now that we have uh, MRI availability and that we have a better understanding what uh, what can happen to the brain and then just attributed to a metabolic dysfunction that, uh, uh, of which the brain will get better after we've corrected the metabolic dysfunction. It's very interesting. It just it brings to mind, and I can't remember who, who said it, but a quote that says that the nature of disease doesn't change. It's we who change as we are able to now see what was imperceptible before, right? So we find more and more structural changes in what used to be considered metabolic. Yeah, you cannot say it any better than that. That's absolutely true. Very interesting. Any comments on thyroid failure? So obviously a acute thyroid failure or myxedema coma is a classical presentation. That's not very common, but I think uh, from... Uh, no, and, no, and, and um, I do have to really have to think uh, who was the last patient that I saw. Uh, but uh, what I can recall is that uh, a patient with mixed edema's coma looks like a hypothyroid. Um, 
if you know how to if you know how to recognize that, you will see uh, that that's what it is. It's not a, it's not it's not an out of the blue uh, surprise uh, if a patient has uh, severe hypo uh, um, is severely hypothyroid. Uh, they have all the hallmarks of uh, significant hypothyroidism uh, while they uh, while they are. Um, uh, becoming comatose as a result of that. Um, some of them also will will have uh, specific MRI scan abnormalities, but if most of them, it's uh, reversible, um, uh, fortunately, and we don't know about a really long-term effect of this. Uh, so uh, they're recognizable. If you know how to recognize hypothyroidism, you will be able to recognize mixed uh, um, uh, hypothyroid-associated coma. Perfect. And that would not be, the, be a problem. And we, we talked, obviously, that in the ICU, what's most common is multiple organ failure. Uh, any comments when we have multiple organs failing and we also have acute encephalopathy? Any general comments? I mean, that's probably the most common patient. No, I think, I think, I think many of those patients, I think what ha there's something happened to the brain if, uh, if the patient is not awakening after there's multi-organ failure. But... Um, our observations there are extraordinarily limited, and, and the reason is that patients don't survive multi-organ failure. So if you have patients who survived, th those patients have been treated for weeks often, and gradually the organs have improved, start to improve uh, after many, many weeks uh, in those survivors. Um, and, um, and I don't know how good we have examined them um, by neuroimaging, I don't uh, don't think we have uh, a good series of uh, neuropathology in patients who did not survive, in which someone really carefully looked at the brain. So we, it's a it's an area that uh, surprisingly is poorly studied. Although we see so many patients who die from sepsis, knowing what is happening to the brain uh, in that in that circumstance, certainly if it leads to other organ failure, it's an area that could uh, could be much better studied. Perfect. I think that um, one of the things that, that I really uh, look forward uh, when trying to understand syndromes or diseases is some like what people call first order principles or fundamental precepts. And from reading many of your papers, it seems that when you think about metabolic encephalopathy, you think of three precepts that I just want to share with you and then get your comments as we close on the topic. So number one is that the search for structural brain injury should continue despite what seems to be an obvious metabolic abnormality in that, like you said, to be careful with not falling prey of, oh, they have a metabolic problem and, and not really look for potential structural brain injury that might require intervention. Number two is that we must recognize the confounding conditions and eliminate them. And you said drugs, drugs, and drugs. And two drugs that you talked about that I want to remind our listeners are cefepine and um, fentanyl, just because so many patients in the medical and surgical ICU are on those drugs that I think it's important to, to keep that in the back of our mind. And number three, which we talked a little bit about, uh, Elko, is that the resolution of brain dysfunction may take a little bit longer despite what seems to be a normalized lab lab values, and that might be just part of the disease process that we don't fully understand. You couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't have summarized it any better. That's exactly what it is. 
And finally, um, in terms of uh, um, you talked about the initial approach to encephalopathy and you, you were very clear in terms of documenting and doing a good neurologic examination with the level of consciousness, um, obtaining new metabolic panel and looking for trends and substantial changes. Always a good idea if you're evaluating a patient for acute encephalopathy to have a recent arterial blood glass. You talked about the impact of oxygen, but more importantly, the impact of CO2. You you said over and over again, ammonia and lactate. So make sure that we check a serum and ammonia lactate that are recent. Imaging, obviously, is where we're going to try to find these structural abnormalities, CT or um, MRI when appropriate. 24-hour EEG, you said something to consider, but you also mentioned that in the in the ICU, uh, maybe not the highest yield in, in this general population. Uh, when did you obtain CSF, Elko? Yeah, I think I think um, we do that. It's almost obligatory in patients who are immunocompromised. Um, I don't think that we do it uh, automatically in patients who are septic, and obviously in patients who have a neurologic examination that could suggest that uh, that there is an, um, a meningitis. But I think we have a low threshold in any immunocompromised patients who has a fever or even has no fever to make sure that that's not um, uh, more specifically looked at. Yeah. Now, CSF is um, definitely obligatory in a patient who comes to an ICU and you don't know why the patient is comatose. Um, uh, that, of course, is in, in a different situation. But a patient in the setting of critical illness, which in the overwhelming majority are patients who have... Uh, had um, acute respiratory failure or uh, or sepsis, I think um, uh, it, there is a low yield. Um, we we uh, I also don't think there's a high yield in patients who have endocarditis, and as a result of it, and, uh, and it might even be dangerous to do a spinal fluid examination in a patient with endocarditis and may have epidural abscesses as a result of it. Um, so um, uh, CSF, uh, mostly in, uh, in, in patients who come into your medical ICU and you're working up the patient's coma in general, um, and it definitely in patients who have been uh, in a medical ICU uh, uh, who's immunocompromised or has had uh, um, chemotherapy or, uh, or is... Um, um, has, has uh, the possibility of an opportunistic infection. Perfect. And, and you, you talked also about correcting all the, the, the potential confounders, where it be replaced electrolytes, correct the vitamins. I think I want to reemphasize that there are anti antibiotics, and you talked a lot about cefepine, but others such as metronidazole can also have impact. And I don't think uh, that non-neurologists are as aware and as aggressive and maybe evaluating and changing those when possible. We have multiple options usually, or we don't need antibiotics, which is usually the case or so something to think about. And the last um, aspect of the workup I wanted to ask you about or the, the approach to the encephalopathy is when do you consider these zebras and you, you've written about like porphyria, we talked about Wernicke, which is not very common, pellagra, some more um, rare congenital um, defects like melas. When do you even think of those, um, Elko? Rarely. Um, uh, acute porphyria has occasionally come up. Um, um, 
I listed them there because these are causes for uh, unexplained um, uh, cases. Um, but I would think that in a general practice, you probably almost never have to consider them. Um, uh, and it's um, and they're they're called zebras for a reason. Excellent. Well, I, I definitely want to be respectful of your time, Elko, and I really appreciate um, you uh, helping us understand this um, very commonly utilized uh, concept of metabolic encephalopathy, but poorly understood and maybe poorly managed because we're not maybe approaching it in, in the right way a lot of times. So I really want to appreciate that. And uh, we usually close the podcast with a couple of questions unrelated to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Yeah, go ahead. What book or books have influenced you the most or what book have you gifted most often to others? Um, yeah, that's, that's a difficult question for someone who has over a thousand books in his, um, in his home. Um, um, I think, I think, um, uh, the books that I, uh, that I, the books that I liked most, um, uh, is obviously, uh, uh, Darwin's Origin uh, of Species, but also um, uh, the biography on, of Darwin by uh, Jeanette Brown, a two-volume biography of uh, Darwin, which I think is our greatest scientist uh, ever. Um, and so I've, I, I, that's a book that I um, have reread multiple times. But, um, of course, I like um, film, and as you probably uh, mentioned, um, I... Um, there, there are several books of, on film that I uh, that I would recommend. I think uh, if someone wants to um, really enjoy film and, and film criticism, uh, uh, virtually every book by David Thompson uh, is uh, it would be a good choice. Um, he has a wonderful encyclopedia um, in which he discusses not only every actor uh, uh, but also uh, a large number of films in short in short uh, essays and it's uh, wonderful to read and highly novel and uh, innovative and and i will also um i think one of the reasons why i ask these questions is because i'm a big believer in in trying to really uh, in, uh, touch the the humanistic part of medicine and people are more than just their medical knowledge which obviously in your case is uh, quite vast and, and impressive but uh you have written about medicine and film and several books and neurology and film. And I would definitely um, put the links to those in the show notes. But when you said Porphyria, um, there's a famous movie that came to mind. I think it, it was called The Badness of King George. Is is that what, what drove him to, to go mad? Is that the right the right movie I'm thinking? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And the answer is no. He would never have to acute Porphyria, although everybody thought it is. And there's good arguments against it. Um, um, that he had mental illness, I think, was uh, was right. But um, the problem we have, and it's, I call that, and I have a chapter on that, it's called iconodiagnosis, uh, means that uh, physicians um, have the tendency to look at artwork and uh, to, to try to figure out um, why, um, uh, what kind of disorder uh, the composer or the, or the painter had. Um, and sometimes it's well known, uh, what he has, and then it's interesting to see how an artist changes. Um, uh, but if you go uh, uh, more deep into time, uh, it's it's a big, it's uh, it's a lot of speculation, and it's more uh, entertainment than really uh, science. So the same happened to uh, 
uh, King George that he was that there's no evidence to suggest he had acute porphyria. It's a good movie though, but <laughs> no, uh, no porphyria. Excellent. The second question relates to, to to beliefs. What do you believe to be true in in neurology or neurocritical care that most other intensivists outside of neuro, of the neuro world don't believe? Yeah. Um, I think there's there's one little there's one major element actually, um, and the element is that um, patients who are, uh, neuro, are have a neurocritical illness may not look so sick as uh, as many general intensivists uh, um, um, know. So you can have a patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage who is sitting in a chair and has a little bit of a headache. Who can be? Who is critically ill? Um, and critically ill meaning that uh, a couple hours later the patient might be uh, symptomatic from vasospasm. I think um, in, gen- in general, uh, and it, it applies to many neurocritical illnesses, is that patients have uh, often such a high degree of secondary deterioration. Um, whether it's a um, if it's a brain injury or if it's a, a peripheral nerve injury, myasthenia gravis, for example, is a good example. Is that they look great and it is all not uh, all and all the numbers look good, but why did this patient suddenly crash an hour or two later? And that's simply because it's not recognized or people don't um, um, don't tend to think that they're that sick while they are extraordinarily sick and and uh, are in the middle of an evolving neurocritical illness. I think that's a, that's what I've seen over, over, over time is uh, makes the, makes the specialty so difficult uh, is to judge um, who is going to deteriorate and how, how bad is this patient going to deteriorate. And and I think it's a great teaching point for people who, in our audience and have a very broad practice in communities because you might be conditioned to really equate severity with how clinically the patient looks to you. And like you said, yeah. some of these neural uh, emergencies or neurocatastrophes might be impending on the border of the precipice and you just can't pick it up unless you really think about it and it can, it can be deceiving. So I think it's a great point. Yeah. And I think it's important for us, um, uh, to um, to understand what the trajectory of acute uh, illness, acute neurology is, uh, and n- knowing that trajectory uh, would help us understanding um, uh, what could happen in the um, in the next uh, 24 hours or even hours uh, in the emergency department if the patient is in the emergency department. Perfect. And to close, Elko, I just wanted to ask. What would you want every intensivist who's listening to know? Could be a quote, a fact, or a thought. Say that again. What would you want every intensivist who's listening to know as a departing um, statement? Could be a quote, or a fact, or just a thought. Yeah. So I think um, uh, what I um, um, have noticed, and definitely over the last uh, over the last year, is that. Um, um, and certainly, when we uh, after the pandemic or doing still, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but uh, we're, we're now in a in a period in which it's uh, lightening up. But um, is that um, uh, and that's what I've been trying to do is uh, try to continue to enjoy your work and and understand uh, that you're there for a reason. Um, 
and that you try to help uh, patients as best as they can, help their families as best as they can. Um, it's it's what we chose. It's a lifestyle we've chosen to do. It's a difficult lifestyle we have. It's there's a lot of sacrifice uh, for for us and your own family involved. Uh, but we uh, continue to uh, to think that we're trying to help the patient and their families. Absolutely, I think connecting with our purpose is uh, something that we should do uh, more frequently, especially like you said after after yeah. the pandemic. Well. Elko, I really want to thank you for um, being so generous with your time and also sharing your expertise with our with our listeners. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in an upcoming conference and saying hi, and also hopefully having you back on the podcast in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sounds transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.